Cinema Foundation of the Podcast. I'm your host, Titus, and today I'm joined by a new conversationalist, Tanner Greer, a young conservative who has adventured through Asia and America and who is preparing to write a book about America. Tanner, I read your piece in National Review, your long essay in answer to reform conservatism about the future of conservatism, and that piqued my interest. Thank you a lot for joining me, and please introduce yourself for our audience, since it's your first conversation here. Well, thank you for having me on the podcast. My name is Tanner Greer, like you said, and some of you might know me as a writer, kind of on Twitter. I got a lot of followers or whatever. I have a blog called The Scholar Stage, and then I pop up in a lot of different magazines. A lot of the last five years I've spent in Asia, China, Taiwan, and I've written a lot about defense and politics issues out there. But I've also written pieces for the standard slew of American conservative magazines, American Conservative, Weekly Standard, National Review, on conservative politics and America's heritage. And that's kind of what I'm doing now. I came back from China in December, traveled across the United States to get to D.C., where I was given a fellowship to write a book about America's history from 2003 to 2020. So that's me in a nutshell. Well, you told me that you're not even 30 yet. That's quite a lot to have done running around and to have seen and written about. So it's, uh, I think, a surprise for my audience and certainly a delight for me. I was especially glad to hear about your experience in China. And if we have another chance, it'll be lovely to do a conversation about that. But for now, your current topic and the interesting things you have to say from your journeys and conversations with young conservatives about beliefs and the expectations, the fears and the hopes of young conservatives. Tell me, first of all, about your essay in National Review and the lessons of 2016. Mm. So the essay was titled Learning the Wrong Lessons from Reform Conservatism. It's actually something I've been thinking about for quite a while, but National Review gave me a chance to write a response to an article they had published about two weeks before by uh, Yuval Levin and Ramesh, um, I don't know how you pronounce his last name exactly, Panaru? Um, well, <laughs> maybe just call him Ramesh. They are um, standard bearers for a group of conservative thinkers who were called the Reform Conservatives or Reformacons. If you were to kind of summarize what they were about, Almost all of them were Generation X, and they kind of like burst out onto the scene at the end of the Bush presidency and the early Obama years. Um, and you can kind of see their movement as a response to the failures of the Bush presidency and perhaps an attempt to intellectualize the energy of the Tea Party and respond to kind of Obama's federal overreach as they, as they saw it. Their central claims of the reform conservatives, they kind of said, we um, are too wedded to this Reaganite consensus. We are no longer living in the late 70s, or early 80s, and the conservative ideas need to adapt to a new reality. I, I kind of think of them as having three main planks. The first one was they wanted to take conservatism and reorient it for the working class, middle class, um, instead of being for like corporate interests. Ross Guthat's Grand New Party is a pretty good example of that line of thought. The second one was they explicitly wanted to reorient the Republican Party around families. They wanted to incentivize the creation of families, help people have families. Like one of their signature policies was child tax credits, this idea that you should basically reward families financially for having kids through the tax policy. And the insight behind that was that actually the main standard bearers for Republicans was married couples. And then, you know, being married and having kids is key to being a joyful human being. So they want to incentivize it. And then the third thing is they were very strong on decentralization. You might say that they have this vision of life that involves happy families and all these things like that, that they want to keep preserved from the federal government. And so things the federal government does should be turned over to the states, things the state governments do turn over to the cities, and things the cities do turn over to civic organizations. Put the power closer to the hands of normal people. And through this method, you could maybe end the culture wars. So instead of having people fight over what national gun policy should be or what gay marriage should be for the whole country, let people in Massachusetts do the thing they want to do, let people in Louisiana do the thing they want to do, and that will solve the central problems that have dogged the culture wars over the last 20 years, the boomer era culture wars, which they were kind of sick of. They kind of brand themselves as we're Gen X guys, we're going to come up with something new, something wonky, solve our problems through marginal improvements to the current system that lead to the kind of thing we want and limit the power of the federal government to strangle markets, but also the way of life that we cherish most. 
that's kind of the Reformacom platform. They were a prominent movement from 2010 to 2016 or so. Many newspapers like, gave them these really glowing profiles. They talked about how they would be the future of conservatism, and many people hoped they would be, but they weren't. And that's what this piece in the National Review was about. Two of the leaders of this movement essentially wrote a postmortem saying, like, well, why did we fail? Like, what was it that made our vision fall apart? Because in some ways, they were absolutely right. They were right that average American conservatives don't really care that much about free market ideology and these Reagan era platitudes that American right needs to reorient itself around the working class. They correctly said that one of the biggest problems in American life is that the federal government has taken over and that civic institutions have faltered. And so American communities have become weak and tempted by kind of authoritarian strongman solutions. That was immensely prescient, that judgment of the American people absent traditional community mooring. But even though they were so right about kind of predicting the state we would be in, as a group of people, they fell apart and they're kind of irrelevant in the current moment. And so the question is, why? What happened to them? And they have an answer to that question. And that answer is very different from my answer. And my answer has implications beyond just the reformer cons, but for conservatism as a whole. Yeah, I think you're right. Reform conservatism was supposed to be the young, humane, smart, expert, institutional wing of the conservative movement. They, like so many other young conservatives, went from reading National Review and things like that to college, to getting internships at think tanks and becoming involved in DC and the world of movement conservatism. And from inside, they wanted to reform it, precisely because they thought that George W. Bush was not either fulfilling his mandate or helping conservatism out and that conservatism had become too much of a cloak for policies and for politics that were suicidal. As you said, the party and its intellectuals had lost sight of who their electorate actually was and how they should treat those people. What is it that they have to offer and how can they be persuasive? And instead of triumphing when the entire party establishment was wiped out in 2016, they were wiped out alongside it, which you know, points for loyalty, first of all. They didn't turn around and say, we told you so all these years, you didn't listen, now go to hell. Loyalty is admirable. But on the other hand, it's remarkable that people who were, as you said, so prescient were so ineffective, so little able to accomplish anything when so much should have been persuasive, possible, both to their credit and to the public good. That's what's indeed so strange and mysterious about reform conservatism. Ross Douthat in a column for the New York Times up and said that Donald Trump is just the evil twin of reform conservatism. He ran with their concerns, the first man to be willing to champion that electorate. Nevertheless, he wouldn't come to any good and, of course, neither would they. This is a very strange situation to be in and you have some ideas about why it is that these people are not persuasive to young conservatism and cannot grow the conservative movement or even come to influence it. Yes. So one other thing that probably should be emphasized about the reformacons, because my explanation of what they believed in focused on, I guess, their beliefs, but not on their style, which I actually think is an important part of the story. The reformacons at their base were wonks like probably 10 guys and like two women who all knew each other. They were a DC clique. They had this belief that political and cultural, well, ideological change happens through kind of a capture at the top. Think tankers, staffers on the Hill, and then a few writers who more or less said, we can kind of intellectually come up with these solutions, influence key lawmakers. And they were really influential people like Paul Ryan. Then we will institute this victory in a top-down fashion. And they believe really, really strongly in being very policy-oriented and being very detailed. Like the first major publication was essentially this very, very wonkish how to fix things on the margin through taxes, through credits, through all like little small things that they could do to make the world a little bit more the one they wanted it to be. They were the opposite of revolutionaries. They were very big on trying to be politically realistic. Which is laudable, but I think it helps explain part of the reaction against them. Now, to understand what I think they did wrong, maybe a good place to start is with their own explanation, Yuval Levin and uh, Ramesh Ponaru's explanation. And they basically say the answer is Donald Trump. 
they give two reasons for that, one of them more sophisticated than the other. The very simple Donald Trump reason is that the Reformacons themselves were split and divided by Donald Trump. Some of them thought he was a you know, terrible person who could never be supported, never Trumpers. Other ones were very much on the side of we need to seize this moment and use it whether or not we like or dislike Trump. And some of them like Trump perfectly fine. And so that caused a fracture in the movement. And when the movement's 10 people, that kind of fracture has a big impact. But they had a more sophisticated point that they make in their piece, that Trump puts conservatives in a very interesting position because he's not very ideological himself. He doesn't really stand for anything. He stands against some things. And there's certain things like, say, trade war that are very associated with Trump's approach. But he doesn't stick to ideology in the way that, say, George Bush with his compassionate conservatism might have. At the same time, the Republican Congress was a terrible Congress. They were not able to do anything. They weren't able to pass health care. They weren't able to really make a legislative agenda. And so this puts conservative intellectuals in a kind of interesting position. And when the Democrats are in charge, they have a very focused goal, which is to stop the Democrats from doing whatever the Democrats really want to do. And that provides them focus, this need to respond to an enemy. Whereas when a competent president and Congress is in power, the Republican intellectual's energy can be spent on figuring out actual solutions for actual problems. The Reformacons would love that because they're wonks and they want to be spending their effort and their energy on kind of wonky details, finding solutions, implementing them. And the current environment doesn't have any of that. The current environment is a immense Republican civil war between six or seven different factions who are fighting for the future of the conservative movement. And they kind of say this is because of this current environment we're in where we essentially can't pass anything and we're led by somebody who doesn't have any ideology. So we're still arguing over what he really should represent. We're still arguing over what Trump should mean for the future. And these has cracked deep philosophical divides that wouldn't be relevant if we were in the mode of just like passing bills. But since we're not, all we can really do is kind of fight each other and that destroyed our movement. Yeah, I think you're right that the style and the ideas and their analysis are all connected and we could summarize it this way. They hoped that we could keep politics to the level of means, not ends. They thought that since they have the best means, the most expertise and a reasonableness about themselves, a willingness to be institutional and to institutionalize their politics, then they should be trustworthy. But in being trustworthy, actually have influence. In a situation, however, where politics descends to a disagreement about the ends to be pursued, not simply about effectiveness, then even prudential questions are far more sophisticated since they start involving ideas like maybe it's better to lose now and win later. Maybe it's better to do very risky things now than to play it safe. All of a sudden, caution is no longer the watchword. And all of a sudden, insiders and elites are not as important as they had been before. So all of a sudden, it is possible to look to politics outside of Washington, D.C., outside of the conservative press, outside of Republican influence. Yeah, I don't think the reformacons themselves would have said that ends don't matter. But there was, I think, a level of compromise built into their system. You know, like when you basically say Louisiana can do its thing while Massachusetts does its thing, that is kind of saying that, okay, we are okay with multiple ends being pursued by different actors. And they're correct in this point, that you have to get buy-in from the rest of the country, um, which a lot of the people that we're going to talk about later on, the, the young conservatives, don't care about that at all, and it's going to be their downfall. Um, yeah, <laughs> but very good point. My essential response to this narrative, you've all... Levin and the reformicons kind of have, is that it is a very generational way to look at things. If Levin and company made their name by attacking the boomers for being out of touch, I kind of take the similar critique against them. Because as I've gone across the country and talked to these different conservatives, people who are in Silicon Valley, people who are staffing on the Hill, whoever, I've realized that for them, Trump really is not the defining political event of their short lives. <laughs> Trump is also not the main event which their personal philosophies are a response to, which is very different from, I think, the people who are boomers or Gen X. Like Their model of politics right now is very much Trump and response to it. 
But for younger people, Trump is not really the game changer. And I suspect even if Trump had not been there, the reformer cons would have had the same problems and the conservatives would have had a very similar split. If Trump died tomorrow and Pence took over, for example, I don't think this would be solved, even though Pence would likely be a more competent policy person. And the reason for that is that if you talk to young conservatives, what they are most concerned about is the great awakening. I didn't invent that phrase. It's been around for a long time. Most people who think they invented that phrase didn't either. But the idea of the great awakening is around 2014 or so, there was a sea of change in opinion on racial issues, sexual issues, kind of anything involving social justice writ large. The way people thought about this changed immensely. And there's lots of funny ways you can measure this. People have looked at, say, the New York Times, the number of times they use phrases like structural racism, cisgender, that kind of thing. White um, Intersectionality. Yeah, white privilege. I've seen some fairly good things written by like, leftists to talk about when in the media this became a big thing, when people started seeing about this. The core ideas have been around for quite a long time. Most of them were pioneered by academics two decades ago. They kind of infiltrated Tumblr and a lot of online leftist communities in the late aughts. And then around 2013, probably a lot of it was related to the Ferguson event. Around that time, a lot of these ideas really went mainstream and they kind of took over many left spaces where they're now the default language and the default way of thinking about things in places like Silicon Valley, in academia, in newsrooms across the country, especially for anybody who's, say, under the age of 40. I think a lot of the old boomers in those places are really not quite with that. They're more traditional liberals in a sense, but they've kind of been swallowed up in this new world where social justice ideology kind of provides its own theology, provides its own you know, version of salvation, guilt, who is good, who is bad, its own version of evil, its own version of heaven and utopia that we shall be aiming for. And this has been so pervasive that young conservatives are freaking out <laughs> because they're kind of treated by default as a species of evil. And there's a lot of worry about what they might be in the future. This victory, the victory of the social justice things didn't really come through the government, though the government played a part especially with Title IX stuff, um, but mostly came through the old-fashioned way of cultural change, through movies, YouTube videos, through op-eds, essays, class syllabi, through HR codes. And this is what young conservatives are responding to. What bothers them is not so much the federal government is going to come and destroy me, although when the next leftist takes power, they might get more worried about that. I remember that's what the reformer cons were upset about, is Obama is extending the federal government's reach into parts of life that it hasn't been before. But for the young conservatives, what really matters to them most is not how do I respond to an overreaching federal government to preserve my way of life, but what should my way of life be in the first place? In the face of this assault on kind of all traditional things, how do we respond to that? How do I fight back against this outside of government? And that's the key mooring that all of the various things that are popular among young conservatives share, is this idea that really the culture wars are over, we lost them, now what do we do? And the reform ones don't have an answer to that. They explicitly try to avoid that topic. Yeah, I think that's a very good point. Older conservatives are still committed to institutions and institutional ways of doing things that are premised on pluralism because nobody can believe that Texas and California are going the same way and could be run in the same way with the same beliefs. You have to make allowance for all the difficulties and all the distinctions, for all the interests and all the factions in a nation of 300 plus million people. Therefore, they stress the forms, the procedures, how we do things and the importance of government in that scheme is that it guarantees some kind of cohesion and at the same time guarantees freedom by staying out of things. Whereas when the threats no longer come from the federal government, but from corporate HR, from academia, from social media corporations in Silicon Valley, then there's no free market answer to that. To tell young people, build your own Facebook or something like that, parses like insanity. Well, actually, I think there might be, I wouldn't call it a free market answer to that. I would call it a, a, a civic or a cultural answer 
to that. And to be honest, I don't think it's really been tried. One of the things that I've thought about a lot in the last few months is that American conservatives for the last 40 years, they didn't really fight a culture war. They fought a political war over culture. But culture itself was never really contested. Very few attempts by conservatives to create the exact sort of things that the liberals won through. Movies and music and media and books, class syllabi, ways of living, communities. They didn't do that because they associated themselves with the overculture, the moral majority, however you want to say it. The normal Americans, that was them. And so all they needed to do was try to find ways to hold off or stave off these like liberal weirdos, you know, keep them contained in their own thing. Conservatives who grew up in a different generation, they still often have this attitude that we more or less just need to protect what we have. But for young conservatives, the feeling is that we don't have anything. A very large number of young conservatives do not have any religion at all. They're secular. And a lot of the ones who do feel incredibly embattled. Belief in the old civic national story of America, of American freedoms and American liberalism, is at an all-time low on both sides, like left and right. Young people were never taught this, and they were taught the flaws in it. It's national myth doesn't really hold. The Reagan myth doesn't hold. And then they live in these communities, which the Reformicons particularly saw. Social capital is at an all-time low. Well, for many of them, not all of them. The civic glue, which held these people together, has dissolved. And so if you're a young conservative, the overculture, the moral majority is no longer yours. The moral majority is controlled by the left and is very moralistic. You essentially are a counterculture or you will have to become one in order to survive. But conservatives, especially older ones, are very uncomfortable with this and they often don't see the need because for them, like, it's not the world they grew up in. They grew up in the world where you, you kind of have all this. It's assumed that you know what is going on and that you have a way of life that is meaningful and significant. And you just need to get the liberals some stop interfering with it. But for the young conservatives, that's not how it is anymore. And so a lot of them feel very, very lost. And this is what the new conservative movements all have an answer to this. They basically can do two things. Number one, they can say, okay, here's why the Great Awakening is wrong. And number two here's what your life should be like after all. This is how you can find meaning. And I think one of the best examples of this actually, I didn't mention this to any of my articles, but a, a very good example of this phenomenon, this kind of generational gap, is go look up the David French review of Jordan Peterson. He and a lot of other conservatives of his generation look at Jordan Peterson and they're kind of like, I don't get it. Like, what's the appeal? He's using all these Bible quotes, like, yeah, we got the Bible, it's great. What those people did not understand about Jordan Peterson is Jordan Peterson speaks this moment. Okay, if we're in a pagan culture, how do we ensure that we have virtuous pagans instead of vicious ones? How do you find a sense of meaning in your life right now, even if you don't believe in traditional Christianity, even if you don't believe in or have much of a connection to the traditional American mythos? And people like David French look at Jordan Peterson like, oh, this is kind of intellectual lightweight. I can't believe so many people like, didn't your mom tell you this? Someone in Washington Robose said that in review of Jordan Peterson. We watched one of the shows. Didn't your mom tell you all this stuff? And the answer is no. For most of these people, their mom didn't. Their dad never told them these things. And that is what the reformicons and most older conservatives cannot really speak to. Yeah, I think that's a very good point. Now, uh, with this, we're moving, as you suggested, from politics understood as representative government, public discourse, laws, and policies to something else, to culture. It's, I don't think, a good name, but I also want to point out we don't have a good name for why is this happening, for what are the venues where this is happening, what unites them. And the most obvious thing is, as you said, the new, famous, prestigious, attractive ideas that are not woke just like woke ideas tell you what your purpose is or should be. They are about purpose or teleology. They are not primarily about form, as the other ones were before. The way you should do things. The family was a form, an institution. So is college. So is a career track. So are, of course, the various venues of media and the various venues of politics at various levels. They are all forms. And it's not clear to new people what the purpose of them is. 
Further, I think a lot of us young people suspect that maybe the old forms failed on the terms on which they were understood. Republicans have admittedly won everything they could hope for. Since Reagan, they finally won the Congress and mostly held it after more than a generation of being the minority party. They won all sorts of elections, many governorships and uh, legislative chambers in all forms of political elections throughout the land. 2016 was the apex of Republican conservatism. All three branches of government and all levels of the nation otherwise were won by Republicans. And the result of it, there's no confidence, there's no future, there's no agenda, there are no achievements and no attempts. A certain hollowness of the Republican Party and of conservatism has been revealed. But even at the highest levels of aspirations for these forms, I would like to point out two signs of crushing defeat. One of them has to do with Reagan, who in his farewell address, these are always regretful addresses, they are testaments to the fact that the second terms of American presidents are failures and they are worried for their country. His farewell address, he says that, you know, he was two for three. He dealt with the economy, he dealt with the Cold War, great and urgent, but he failed to restore patriotism. And now I think it's obvious that that was the most important thing and he failed at it. And America, in a way, failed at it, or the Republicans wanted to restore it. The other thing I want to point to is Obergefell. Republicans and conservatism were in communion throughout modern times since the 50s on the fact that the family is the most important thing in society. It's how you define society. It's about the family. Turns out that they do not define what the family is because they do not define what marriage is. For all their fights and for all their political victories, at the end of it all, it was liberals, it was progressives that defined what is the family. What is marriage? That, I think, points to what you were saying. Progressives did not fight the war at the level of elections as they did fight it at the level of the very definitions that are foundational. Marriage is a form, family is a form, but what form it is counts. And since now the forms are redefined by liberal progressives, they in a sense own the culture. And as you say, that puts everybody who is not woke in the countercultural position. Yeah. And I think there are important implications that come from that, that a lot of the young conservatives, when I say young conservatives, many of the standard bearers for these movements are not millennials or Zoomers, but their followers tend to be. So take, you know, Adrian Vermeule at Harvard. He's not a millennial, <laughs> not even close. <laughs> um, but if you see his fan base, it's like strongly, strongly young people. Yeah, traditional um, Catholics who want the state to run social morality that, that, and want political power where they have lost cultural influence. For our audience, we should say Adrian Vermeule is a distinguished law professor at Harvard and a great internet troll on Twitter. And mm -hmm. in between, he is the poster man for integralism, for a kind of Catholic morality that harkens back to ultramontanism in the 19th century. It's impressive in certain ways, but also doomed to irrelevance, as you suggest in your various pieces on the new conservative movements as well, since not even most Catholics like this idea. Right. But I think it's important to understand where the appeal of the integralist vision comes from. This idea that we need to restructure American life and American politics to follow basically 19th century Catholic theology. Because it also expresses, I think, some of the weaknesses of the current moment. Adrian Vermeule just published something in Atlantic like yesterday, right, saying the Constitution should be reinterpreted along the lines of uh, common good, that's the phrase he uses, and that this common good at the end of the day basically comes down to, you know, a hoary truce from the Catholic treasure house. This is ridiculous. On the face of it, it's never going to happen. Uh, never, ever, ever. It's never going to happen. And anyone who thinks about it slightly logically realizes this. American Catholics are a minority of the entire population, though they're a large portion of the religious, and only a minority of those are Catholic generalists. And that if you actually did promote some kind of common good version of the Constitution, the people who are actually going to win are the leftists because they're the people who define the common good at this current moment. And so, like, why is this, like, so what the heck's going on? Why even promote these ideas? And my answer to that question is that it's not really about politics at the governmental level. And it's not really about changing policy. This is almost a conservative version of virtue signaling, where what the tradcasts are signaling is that we believe in a good. We know there is a good. We believe in it. We defend it. This good is so important 
that I am willing to go out onto a crazy limb and make this stupid, crazy argument that the United States should take its constitution and reformat itself along the lines of traditional Catholic thought because it's that important. That is the good. And for young people who feel starved and hungry for a good, for a vision of life, that kind of confidence, that boldness is really, really attractive. And the Catholic Integralists, they don't just have a story of what constitution should be. They have a story of, well, what you should be as a man or as a woman and what men and women together should be, what families should be, what communities should be, and all the way up to, you know, God and humanity. And that comprehensive vision and the willingness to go out on a limb and suffer ridicule and kind of look extreme is what makes that such an attractive vision to so many intellectual conservatives. And I think that's true for like most of the movements that young conservatives had appealed to. And there's, I mean, there's lots of different versions, right? There's kind of like the Peter Thiel-esque futurist group of people. You have, I would say, the Jordan Peterson, IDW sort of people. You have like the Bronze Age mindset, frog Twitter people. Yeah, you have like a whole bunch of different little groups. And this is almost what unites them, is that they have totalizing views of what life should be like. Yeah, I think you're right. And as you said, it's because the reform conservatives were right so right as neoconservatives had been in the 60s about the social problem in America. We say that America is based on families, but family has been wiped out. Marriage is barely, if at all, the dominant, the majority form of life for adults in America. It's challenged in every way culturally, but also sociologically. And that means that people have lived lives that conservative politics has not adapted to. You cannot say to somebody who is in his 20s, I will form your character now. No, that character was formed according to conservative teaching. Family is where character is formed when that kid was four and six and eight and ten. It's too late now. You cannot take back 20 years of American history and say everybody should get conservative ideas and beliefs and habits. You have to deal with people who have been isolated, who have lived without strong families, who have lived without guidance as to the one important question. What life is worth living? What should I do with my life? Mm-hmm. Who am I? And so a lot of people, as you suggest, have migrated to the internet, to social media, to build new communities around vaguely heroic and ironic figureheads who promise that they know what the hell they're talking about, and at least they're not cowards. They're not like everybody else who tells you to be a conformist and never says why you should be conforming and what the upshot of it will be. They have serious answers sometimes, silly answers other times, but always they have clear answers about what the community should be about. And they have embraced a further aspect of the new American society, which is hatred. You might not know what the new majority would be, but you know you're anti-woke. Yes. Knowing that these people hate your guts, they think that you're evil. Woke people have led to the elite level of America saying in public that if you're white and a male, you're evil. And I'll be clear, I think this is actually a very unhealthy development on the right. Just my personal take is that a person defined by hate is hollow. At the end of the day, you're not going to be able to actually achieve what you want to achieve If you're trying to build a movement or if you're trying to build not even a movement, if you're just trying to build a a separate way of life, it needs to be something that has appeal to people. You need to be able to build and not just destroy. And that's what a lot of these folks, some of them get it better than others. But I guess there's two points I want to make. The first one is that at the end of the day, actually, politically, even though I criticize Levin and Panru quite a bit, I'm much closer to their version of political economy, their version of like pluralism. I believe in those things. Not only do I believe in those things, I think they're very deeply built into American history. A great book to read is Fisher's Albion Seed, and then his second book, American Liberty, the deep history of American liberalism and liberty in like the revolutionary era and the colonial era. For 300 years, we've been liberals deep down, and I don't think that's really going to change. And I also feel like that is, personally, I do support kind of this Tocquevillian liberal society, but I recognize that the people who support this view, the David Frenches and Yuval Levins of the world, they don't know how to sell it in the same environment. You need to be able to, well, let me read to you something. I wrote the blog post about my piece in the National Review on my blog called The Scholar Stage, and it was picked up by some of the alt-right people. 
Bronze Age pervert picked it up. And so I got a bunch of comments from the alt-right Twitter sphere afterwards. Here's one of those comments in response to me kind of saying, oh, if you, if you believe in things like the Declaration of Independence, what's going on in the conservative future really should worry you. And here's what this comment said, quote, you're losing because we're tired of you, of your bow ties, your think tanks, your today articles and unheard of magazines that you think are the actual work for your true conservative trademark costs. We're tired of your globalist America comes second, surrendering of the USA job markets to everyone, the people who built the USA. What in all these post-World War II decades have you actually conserved for the American people, Mr. Conservative? You see, what we are most tired of is your constant insistence on being defeated gracefully. Some of us are not afraid of the names the left will call us. Some of us want to win. Meanwhile, it's the moderates who attack their own side. Stop punching right, get out of our way. And that's the response that they have to people like Levin and French. And I'm kind of implicated in myself because I don't support frog Twitter semi-fascism. But this critique that's being said here, it isn't really a political critique. It's aesthetic critique. What does he say? We're tired of your bow ties. <laughs> They're tired of the style and the sterility of existing American right. And so if you are a person like me who says that, oh, actually the Declaration of Independence is a good thing, I believe it is, then you have to be able to defend it without bow ties. You need to be able to defend it in a way that shows this is the kind of life that liberalism might allow a person. This is the kind of manliness, because that's a big concern of all this, that is allowed in this system. It's not all demure think tankers who can't stand up for what they believe in or get a date. Yeah, I think you're right. Manliness is a big problem. It ties all things together. The insight of the new movements is that politics is more about anger than any other passion. You might not know who you are, you might not know what to do with your life, but the moment somebody treats you like dirt, somebody attacks you, then you will know who you are. You will know you are this person in danger, humiliated, that angry impulse to defend yourself, to assert yourself. That is the origin of manliness, and it is also the origin of justice. It is unique, and it is something that conservatives, for all their academic learning in the last two generations, have studiously forgotten. You know the beautiful by the beautiful. This is the ancient teaching. A beautiful horse, a beautiful woman, a beautiful day. That's how you know the beautiful. But you only know the just by the unjust. You go about your day and nothing bad happens. You don't say to yourself, thank God for justice. You don't say everybody acted with justice on the roads, in the shops, at work, the various things you did. But let one guy cut you off in traffic. Let some corporation shortchange you or offer you bad service. All of a sudden, you become furious, angry. Over what? Over chump change? Over a minor inconvenience? No, over your dignity. Anger reminds you that you have certain rights. You can't do this to me. I have my rights. Who do you think you are? What do you take me for? These are the claims of anger that build up justice. And they all come out of injustice. And conservatism is not able to speak to that. And they are manly concerns because, let's face it, the enemies of the woke are young white males. Those are the chosen targets of the woke, and there's no going around it because nobody, polite or impolite, beautiful or debased, can stop the woke from behaving the way they do, from acting the way they do, from speaking the way they do, on and offline. And so something has to be done, and people have decided to take it into their hands. This is about manliness and its politics and its culture and its aesthetics and it's all these things put together from people who say you should speak like a blackguard because that's authentic to people who think you should be pumping iron because that will make you a manly man to people who say burn it down. My willingness to commit crazy things or say crazy things shows that I am not a conformist. I'm not conforming to politeness, civility, morality, whatever people say. That shows freedom. That shows I'm a man. And dismissing these claims or despising them only makes it worse, of course, because it proves that the enmity is real and shared. Strife has been engaged. It's not just a misunderstanding. If you can't have anything else, having an enemy is very helpful. Conservatives should know it was hatred of the Soviets that kept conservatism together. And nevertheless, this has been forgotten, and the way it has been remembered is quite worrisome. I agree with you. Class is involved in this as well, sneering at people in bow ties and people who are trademarked or sellouts or 
conservative ink or all these other names suggests a class war that institutionalized conservatism is profiting from their ideas at the expense of the people they're actually supposed to persuade or serve or so forth. That is the argument implicit here. And that more vulgar people, more aggressive people, the people, they are the future. And that is, of course, also the difference between writing for National Review, like I occasionally do and you occasionally do, and writing on Reddit or somewhere else. And there's no denying that this somewhere else is in a certain way more democratic. If you want a big audience in America, you should be on Twitter or Reddit. You should be Bronze Age pervert. Or, you know, uh, if you want to look at his good twin, you should be Joe Rogan. That's how you get millions and millions of viewers. Not by writing for National Review like I sometimes do and you sometimes do. Well, and there's nothing wrong with writing for a niche publication, right? But And I'm certainly I'm on Twitter and get a lot more followers to that. But I want to return to the comment you made about anger. I'm not sure I 100% agree with this idea that anger is the necessary foundation for any politics, although it's obviously a powerful one, or that it's the foundation for manliness. And this is kind of my point. I definitely think that people like, say, David French would disagree with this idea that it mostly boils down to anger. And I think him and traditional defenders of like the American version of manhood that was current from, I'd say, maybe, I don't know, 1950 through the 80s, that version of manhood was not defined by anger. It was defined by strength. It was not defined by destroying, but by constructing, building. I personally believe that it's probably the better way to go, but I don't think it's very well represented in the public sphere right now. That's part of my whole argument, is that if there are conservatives who are alarmed with what they see, if someone like Bronze Age Pervert disturbs them, and I think he should, though obviously not everyone will agree with me, then they have to be willing to fight that fight at that level. They need to provide an alternative. It's not enough just to say, oh, look at all the, like, all the terrible things the kids are doing down there. You have to be able to kind of model what a way of living that is worth fighting for actually looks like. Now, the reason I am a little bit cherry on this anger and hate thing as the establishment of politics is I, well, let me read to you something else. This is from a book that describes something I think sounds quite similar to our current situation. This passage is going to talk about the bourgeoisie, but if you replace the bourgeoisie with the top 20% liberal America, then you'll kind of see some similarities. Quote, since the bourgeoisie claimed to be the guardian of liberal tradition and confounded all moral issues by parading publicly virtues, which it not only did not possess in private and business life, but actually held in contempt, it seemed revolutionary to admit cruelty, disregard of human values, and general amorality because this, at least, destroyed the duplicity upon which the existing society seemed to rest. What a temptation to flaunt extreme attitudes in the hypocritical twilight of a double moral standards, to wear publicly the mask of cruelty, hate, if everybody was patently inconsiderate and pretended to be gentle, to parade wickedness in a world not of wickedness, but of meanness. That was Hannah Arendt in The Origins of Totalitarianism, describing German intellectuals in the 1920s who were enemies to what she describes as respectability politics. I look at a lot of the current right, the upcoming right, and see the same pattern where people know that the respectability politics of the credentialed classes is fake, that they defend a liberal tradition in name, but not in reality. And so they go for the extreme. They go for attacks on traditional values, things like freedom or tolerance or gentility, which the current credential class says they embody, but actually are lying and do not embody at all. Those people in the 20s, they were very much motivated by the politics of hate and cruelty and meanness. I worry that we are getting very close to the same temptation, which is why I wrote that piece for the National Review instead of some other magazine, because I want readers of that magazine who maybe are not against things like freedom and toleration and gentility to realize how much their current position and their current way of arguing and their current way of like their mannerisms to an extent are endangering the future of values, which I think are important to conservatism and to the American people. I think you're right. I think we really are in a dangerous social and political moment. 
I don't think that is going to end up as Europe did in the 20s. I know it's a very attractive view, partly because Americans like to look at Europe. It flatters them to think that they're sort of like we are. But I think it's also because it's such a big thing. It's noticeable. I think the parallel is faulty, but I do believe that at a certain level of character, at uh, the basics of modern politics, there are certain similarities because Americans got their liberalism from Europe. Indeed, many other opinions. This is why I wanted to have you on the podcast, and this is why we do the Postmodern Conservative series. My mentor, Peter Lawler, defined postmodern conservatism as a conservatism that conserves modernity because there's so much that is good in modernity, but also sees its faults and failures and looks for pre-modern resources that could help where we are weak. As Tocqueville famously said that higher education should add to what Americans already have, those things they do not have, ancient positions that have been lost. I also agree with you that things like style matter a lot, how you address people, how you understand them in their situation. I would say that America is not like Europe in the 20s or elsewhere because Americans are far more egalitarian and they have a tradition of freedom. Americans do not understand that about themselves always and so make this mistake comparing themselves with Europe. But France did not have a long tradition of freedom and it had a pretty short tradition of equality. So also Germany and other countries that succumbed to tyranny. Tyrannies that were emphatically inegalitarian, which was also kind of a welcome reminder. It's the way it had been. After all, all these tyrannies came after the supposedly civilized empires made the worst bloodbath in history. America is not that sort of place. Right, and you know, to be fair, she's also talking about people who are reacting immediately to the consequences of the First World War. Exactly. Which America has not had anything comparable to. I have a lot of optimism about America, but I see in people like that this same strain of we are going to attack respectability and with it, because respectability is so ingrained now with this social justice progressivism that it becomes the enemy. And there's not enough thought on what we're going to build instead. And so that's a lot of my challenge to conservatives, old and young, to think a lot more about, number one, what we want to build, and number two, how we can communicate that through culture and not just through politics. It's not enough just to win elections and then try to impose it from the top down. That's hollow. It doesn't work. And when you lose the next election, it's all gone. We need to be ready to fight maybe a battle that might take several generations. It's how long it took the leftists to take control, to go from counterculture to overculture. We might be in the same position. This might be a 30-year fight, but it's time for us to take the cultural fight seriously or as seriously as we have the political fight. And hopefully donors and other things like that can start thinking along the same lines. And I guess that's kind of my takeaway for the moment. What matters in the future will be our ability to conceptualize different ways of life and different ways of building something worthwhile. Communities, families, individuals that has an appeal separate from just what we hate. And if we can do that in the way the left successfully did from the 1960s forward, we might have hope. And I think this is an exciting project to engage in. It's just convincing conservatives that this is the project that we actually face. I completely agree. This is why I run a foundation that deals with cinema and the arts rather than write about politics, which is such a futile business. Why I look for conversationalists on Twitter rather than on TV or in the press. I am glad to see there are other young conservatives who think similar thoughts, even if we come from very different ways of life, and look at things differently too. It's, I think, some evidence that a lot of other thoughtful people also see the same problem or a similar problem, and we're trying to come to grasp it so that we formulate it adequately and figure out what solutions we have. For example, I would urge you to distinguish anger from cruelty and hatred. And indeed, it's what we all have in common. You know, even nice guys like David French can be humiliated and become indignant, like he did in his debates with Soraba Mari, who trolled him about his manliness. Because if you don't fight back, you're a pussy. Right. Well, the so trolling, trolling is exactly it. Like, that's, I think, my biggest critique of young conservatism at the moment is so much of it is just trolling. Yeah. Yes, and so little of it is concerned with building. And you're right. Like, there's a moment in the Odyssey where Odysseus tells the telemachus, like, now is the time to be angry. And that's what you need to know is when it's good to be angry and when it's not. 
But if we don't have a positive good that's worth striving for beyond just being angry about, I don't think it'll, it'll be enough. You, you need both. So that's one lesson you learn indeed from stories that go back to Homer, that to understand yourself, you have to understand your fundamental conflict. And that is going to be tied up with anger and suffering and fear. But it's the only way through to whatever reconciliation or happiness you can achieve. Anger is a teacher and a test. If it weren't so, American men would not be playing computer games and watching movies. They would not prefer music that's angry. The defining popular culture up until recently at least was rap for a generation. And conservatives poo-pooed it or turned down their noses at what uh, one of my conservative favorites called aggressive nursery rhymes. <laughs> There's a lot of truth to that contempt, but it misses the point. You it does. have men without anger and you cannot tell them to put their anger away if indeed, as you say, you are not able to persuade them that there's something they could do that's better. There's a lot to be angry about and therefore how to deal best with it is the urgent question and to understand that is to understand why are we angry and at what. If you can understand what you think is wrong, what is the danger, what raises your pulse, then you can understand what it is that you want. And that is indeed the lesson that conservatives need to learn, that maybe you need more poetry and less wonkery, both in order to persuade people, but also to understand people dialectically. What are people angry about? If you ask Aristotle, he would say that dialectically, anger is the desire for retribution. Dialectics means form and finality. As to form, anger is a desire. And as to finality, it is for retribution. That means having suffered a loss that you want to avenge, either to retrieve that which you had before and you no longer have, or to retrieve at least your freedom, to not let wrongs go unavenged, which makes you a slave. And this is how young men feel online, and so you cannot make that go away. Tanner, thanks a lot for joining me. I am very pleased to see that you're working on this book on what has happened to America these last almost 20 years, and I was impressed with your writing on all sorts of issues that are interesting to us as conservatives. So I recommend that people look up your website, your blog, Scholar Stage, and follow you at that handle on Twitter. And I hope to have you here again another time to talk about China. Well, thank you very much. It's been a really good talk. And next time I write something bigger about China and stuff, I'll be sure to send it your way. Um, you can find me at at scholars underscore stage or at scholars-stage.blogspot.com. All my writing I do for other magazines ends up on one of those places. And that's where I put my other thoughts too. But uh, thank you again for having me on Titus. It was a pleasure. All the best meanwhile. Perfect.